You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to be speaking with Mark Wunderlich here and are virtually via technology. Mark, welcome to Living Writers. Thank you so much, T. Glad to be here. It's, it's great to hear your voice. Where are you speaking to us from, Mark? Let's let's start there. We'll set the scene. Sure. So I am at my home in Catskill, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley. That's about 100 miles due north from New York City. And I'm here in my house, which is in the countryside and um, near, near this small town. And it's a 300-year-old stone house built by a Dutch farmer around 1715. So there's a little scene setting. You've got a poem in The God of Nothingness about this, this house. Indeed, I do. Yeah. Do you want to read the poem? Sure, sure. This seems like a good a good moment. So, uh, um, this this is a poem uh, that has to do with you know um, my acquisition of this house and sort of moving in. I, a few things I would say is that the the house when I bought it, I've been here oh gosh, almost nineteen years now, and it was a ruin. When when I bought it, it had a big hole in the roof. Um, animals were living in it. All of the pipes had burst. I mean, it was really the kind of house that people say, you know, I hope you're handy. Um, and uh, but I really kind of fell in love with it. And um, and so here's a little poem about the experience of buying a house that's been around for for a very long time, and it's called Haunted House. I moved into the haunted house and gutted it to the bones. I wasn't alone then and worked there in a team. We evicted squirrels from their vast nutshell nest, filled dumpsters with 50 years of trash. I found three lit and ornamented trees in a pile of brush, uncovered secret drawings in a drawer. We tore up a floor to uncover a floor sanded tulip poplar to a sheen. I let the others unhouse the rat snake muscled around the boiler pipes downstairs. They took it in a pail to Corlair's Creek where it braided angrily away. I too slithered in the muddy crawl space, headlamp sputtering with sweat. When the house began to wake, the strangers began to arrive, driving their cars up our long drive to have a proper snoop. Uninvited, they told of Dutch Mary rocking in her scarf, dead slaves buried in a hollow up the hill, the wellhead by the Indian trail where carriages stopped to let their long dead horses have a drink. If you think this scared me, you'd be wrong. I know a story meant to frighten when I hear one. Now I live here alone with the spirits I cannot see. I spend my days inside these rubble stone walls, cooking small meals 
and stoking logs into a smoking stove, while around me history stills to pictures in a frame, the same clouded view for old Dutch Mary waiting at the window once again. So there's a poem about the haunted house. When did you write that poem? Was it part, was it a more recent? I don't know, because it sounds like you, you have the retrospective of, I don't know, there's time that has passed yeah. and there's different, I don't know, the house and, and your life. I feel like, <laughs> I hope this is okay. And I want to talk about uh, one of your poems called The Autobiographical Impulse too. But I almost feel like I know know you a little bit more from reading God of Nothingness, Mark, about your cat, about this this place of yours, about family history, your name. So much of so much of you is within this book. Well, you know, I I um, I think that's really true. And uh, you know, in speaking to this poem which you mentioned, it's it's a it's a more recent poem. I think I wrote it in 2017 or 2018, maybe 2018 when I wrote a lot of these. And um, and it definitely is a poem of retrospection. It's one sort of thinking back on those days of when I was sort of very busily um, working here with my then partner who, you know, he and I owned the house together and um, and sort of reflecting on the fact that now I'm here by myself, you know, and sort of here I am kind of rattling around this house like the rest of the ghosts. So, uh, you know, it was a sort of strange thing that happens when you buy a, a, a historic home, something that's been around for a while, and one that had been allowed to fall into dereliction and, you know, became and was very neglected. People feel attached to some of these old buildings that they've seen for many years. And they also feel a kind of allegiance with them, a kind mm. a sense of ownership mm. to them for these things that have existed in the landscape for a very, very long time. And they may have known someone who lived here. They may have had some experience in, in the house or around it. And I did start hearing from people once they saw that the house was being woken back up. And, uh, and you know, there were, there were um, people... People tell ghost stories for very interesting reasons, and they talk mm-hmm. about hauntedness for a lot of different reasons. And very often, they kind of fall into a ghost stories fall into a couple different categories. And one are stories about injustice, about someone wronged, mm-hmm. and that there's a you know a spirit that has been disrupted and is is still rattling around. And there are others that are attempts to kind of frighten or as i said before to kind of create a sense of sort of ownership or claim important knowledge about a history of something and i think that the things that people started telling me fall into that latter category where you know they would say well you you do know there were slaves in this house and they're buried in the ba- in up on the top of the hill and back of the house well it turns out that yes there had been slaves who lived in this house as there were all throughout colonial new england and new york um but yes. um but in fact they are not buried there right so uh, you know there is no they they talked as though there was a cemetery and in fact there isn't um, oh you did know. you mark did you try to excavate like did you see did you go to that point in the hill and oh yes oh yes and, I, and, I, and, dig? and, and look, not digging no of course not i mean if that was in fact the truth these were talking about 
you know, someone's resting place, they have the right to remain there. But I did look into, you know, um, records. Um, I saw an early will about that that belonged to an, an early owner of the house, the family who built it. And, you know, some of those other things. Um, there are other places in the neighborhood, in the town, in, in around where that, you know, where people were on, on, you know, doubtless buried and, um, and you can find them, but it's not around, right, directly around the house. There are other places where that has, has happened. So, you know, uh, there, I was also told that a murder had taken place in this house. Um, that it's called the, you know, a scissor grinder, the knife grinder had come to the neighborhood. And after a day of sharpening knives and tools, someone slit his throat as he sat by the fire. And that there's a cold spot in my house, a spot that never gets warm winter or summer. And uh, this is where the murder took place. So I was told about a woman who appears in the window in a rocking chair with a a scarf on her head. She appears in this poem as Old Dutch Mary. Oh, yes. And that that was another story. So these were interesting things to think about, right? They were interesting things of why someone, I, I was curious about why someone wanted to tell me these things. Yeah, well, in the poem itself, you have the line and that you that you referred to, Mark. Stories meant to frighten, because because how does that sort of put you on a, a back heel of sorts? Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, what you have to start, kind of think about the the bigger picture of what was happening here locally, what was happening in the region. I bought the house in 2003, and this was a time of another kind of real estate boom, a time when people were, you know, after after 9-11, people fled New York City. We're seeing that again. A lot of people were looking for homes, you know, within driving distance of, of, of New York, but were that were in the country. And of course, the Hudson Valley became part of that part of that experience and people started moving here um in droves right but it really created a kind of tension and it continues Mm -hmm. to create a tension here uh between people who've lived here for a very long time in green county where i live which is uh, one of the poorest counties in new york state um and then there was a sort of influx of well-heeled and wealthy people buying second homes and um, and then you know complaining that things weren't to their exactly to their liking, complaining about smells from farm animals, complaining about oh, noise of someone running a chainsaw, as, uh, you know, complaining about you know things not being available at the grocery store, and you know like a really kind of typical uh, uh, kind of culture clash between you know between that was economic, that was social, that was political. Um, and, uh, and that's part of what this was. And I was seen as part of this new wave of people. And I assume, I suppose I was, um, moving into the area. I was there here with another man, you know, so two gay men, um, there are a lot of assumptions about income and gay men and about how much we have, you know, everyone says, thinks that gay men are wealthy. Um, we were not, um, you know, moving into this area and buying this house and fixing it up. Um, and there were efforts by people, I think, to sort of lay claim to a story that predated this new story that we were creating, which yeah. is understandable. And, 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 th- and they so- didn't know, Mark, that you came with a knowledge from where where you grew up. You're no stranger. Like, you know how to run a chainsaw, for example. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. At, at yeah. least in the poem, Ha Ha Little Hunchback, <laughs> it seems you were taught. 
Yes. Yeah, so I, I grew up on a farm in a very rural corner of Wisconsin and uh, from a family that has lived there in rural Wisconsin for multiple generations. So um, yes, and I grew up doing all kinds of things like that um, and, you know, w- worked on a farm as a child. It's um, you know what this makes me think. Before we go any further, Mark, I'll I'll read uh, the the short bio uh, in the in the back of God of Nothingness, and then we'll keep going with parts of parts of your story and the poems of God of Nothingness. Mark Wunderlich is the author of the Anchorage, which received the Lambda Literary Award, Voluntary Servitude, and the Earth Avails, which received the Rilke Prize. He is the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Massachusetts Cultural Council, the Civitella Rainier Foundation, and elsewhere. He is the director of the Bennington Writing Seminars Graduate Writing Program and lives in New York's Hudson Valley in Greene County. (laughs) More information about the author and his work can be found at www.markwonderlich.com. And Mark, I know we're going to fill in more parts of of your biography today and the ideas of the mind and heart. On the facing page in The God of Nothingness, there's a photo with Charles Emery Wunderlich, October 12th, 1937 to December 22nd, 2018. Yes. Yes, that is a a small photo, and that's the actual size of the photo, Um, so it, it hasn't been shrunk down. Um, and, uh, it's a photo of my father as a child and it's, uh, um, when I was working on this book, uh, my father died after a long illness and I came across this picture of him, which I, I love. It's a very strange, I can describe it for listeners out there. It's just a small, you know, maybe about two inch by one inch photo And um, it's on the banks of the Mississippi, and it's sort of taken at an angle. So it it seems like the the angle of the shoreline goes from one corner to another corner. So it, you know, bisects the the rectangle. And right on the shore of the river is a tiny figure of a child who is gesturing toward um, a a rail from um, from a train track that is broken, that has been split in two and is sort of lying there on the, on the side. And it's a, just a very kind of poignant and strange photo of a small figure in a place between a railroad track and a river with a swift current, a small child who looks kind of perilous <laughs> to me. It seems like that what could possibly go wrong here? You know, I mean, it's, it's, um, uh, and, and, uh, but I, I've always been kind of moved by this strangely, uh, you know, artistic photo taken, I'm quite certain by my grandfather, who was, for the most part, the world's worst photographer. And, you know, uh, where, you know, everyone was even headless, not even, you know, I mean, it just, the photo, I mean, he just could not manage this there. And he took hundreds and hundreds of photographs at some point in his life. And they're all terrible. And uh, except for this one, which I think is quite marvelous and um and so i put it at the back of the book as a bit of a of a of a kind of found memorial for my father your father figures in to many poems and in god of nothingness mark yes he does he does uh you know it's um it's that that kind of strange strange thing where one 
you know, if if your your parents live a long life and uh, if you continue on, you know, at some point they die. And even though I'm I'm you know in my early fifties and my father was old, he was in his eighties at the time of his death, and he had been ill for quite some time. Um, you know, you're still an orphan um, when that happens. You still feel this kind of tremendous shift and and it 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 means that there's a kind of part of you with uh the, the stories that i would never hear anymore the kind of things that i had to disconnect from uh, my father was also a um my relationship with him was was i think like of course like all adult relationships an ambivalent one my father was not a kind of modern soft father as i think of them he was more of an old-fashioned rather hard father, um, um, a patriarch, certainly someone who, you know, was, was not emotive, was not, you know, we were, we were, it was almost like, you know, it, it, it felt like a childhood more of the, of the 19th century than of the 21st. So you kind of want to put it in that, in that category. Might that be part of where, where you were in, in the, the rural, um, Northern central part of the country? Yes, I, I think so. You know, I mean, uh, one thing about the place where I grew up and, and I know that you're, you're broadcasting from Ann Arbor. And so this is, you know, this part of the world is not un, un, unknown to you, but it's, you know, Ann Arbor is a kind of, um, sophisticated metropolis compared to the place, the place where I grew up, which was a town of about 700 people. And of course the place where I grew up was well outside of town, isolated. And, um, and I think when I think of the kind of qualities of my childhood, uh, one of the things that really is, you know, that, that, that strikes me about it is the incredible isolation I yes. often experienced as, as a child. And also, you know, in a time before, before the internet in a time before, you know, so many things, there was also often an incredible lack of information that this is the thing that I think really differentiates, um, you know, I, I would read something and I would have a question. I, there, I, I, I would, I, here's an example. I inherited this collection of books of child, these anthologies of children's literature that had belonged to my father as a child. And they were from the 1930s. And they're a really interesting collection of children's literature edited by a woman named Olive Bupre Miller. This is my book house. Yes, it is. That you wrote about in Why Do I Write? Oh, you've seen that. How, how interesting. I didn't know that anyone had actually seen that essay, which I wrote years ago. But please, please tell us. I don't mean to interrupt, Mark. Please. Well, so, you know, the name B-E-U-P-R-E, right? And this, of course, the name is French, Beaupre, and and I with an accent, you know, at, at the end. And I had no idea how to say that word. And I remember asking, you know, say, asking someone, so how do you, how is that pronounced? And people said, oh, I don't know, Boper or something. I don't know. I don't know how to say that. And so I remember having this, just thinking like, how, how do you find out how something is pronounced? You know, how do you ever find that out if no one knows, if no one around you, obviously it's written this way for a reason, you know, uh, so what could it possibly be? And I remember just being bewildered and ha having to figure that out. This is sort of what marks a childhood, you know, for I think for many people, 
prior to, you know, the era when suddenly there was a, a an internet where all the answers are kept. And, um, you know, one had to kind of try and figure these things out oneself. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I think really kind of marks that experience. Part of this book is looking back at that time, is looking back at these experiences that existed in a place that has largely been forgotten by art and culture, largely passed over. There were, there was, there was so I can think of only one book that was actually set in this region um, where I'm from, and it was Little House in the Big Woods. And that was even, you know, as I say, like that was even 50 miles away. You know, I mean, that was so, I mean, that there's really, it's a place that has no, had no, um, uh, nothing referred to it, nothing, nothing contended with it, nothing translated it into culture. It was only the place that was around you. It was just what people told you about it. And in that way, I think the stories that people told about this place took on a very large life that what I heard from my grandparents and my parents and other relatives, people in this small town, the way they talked about this place became very significant because that's all that existed was talk. And, you know, there was nothing more that documented it in other ways, nothing that translated it into a culture so that other people could understand it. It sounds like they were fiercely trying to keep, even subconsciously, with an oral tradition to, because to mark out the existence of the place, we have these stories, we have this history. That seems to suggest a kind of self-conscious regard for that activity, for the idea of keeping alive an oral tradition. And I'm quite certain that did not exist. That mm -hmm. what, exa what ex existed was really just what has existed in time almost everywhere. And that is a kind of folk cultural response and relationship to the place a place someone is from if there is you know if if no one is around who's sort of you know m making making art about that place you tell each other stories about it and i think that that's that that's common i think that that's been the history of the world um you know and and but that really was that that is what i think it was to live in parts of rural america and for a very very long time and I, I sometimes, I think, I, you know, as I said earlier, that my childhood often felt like something from the 19th century as, as opposed to something from the 20th or 21st. And I think that in rural America, the 19th century lasted a very long time. It lasted well into the 20th. And that, you know, I had neighbors with houses with dirt floors and no plumbing and no electricity. Mm -hmm. there, there was the farmer who lived up on top of the hill and they, you know, cooked on a wood stove and he plowed his fields with horses until he retired, you know, because he didn't want to pay for a tractor. Um, there were those kinds of things. My grandmother, you know, told me stories about Native Americans who would, you know, camp on the islands in the Mississippi in the summer and come in and trade things, you know, in, in town with people. And these, you know, um, long since disappeared. So there was really this sense of a kind of history that the place had that was that was told in these kind of remnants um, that were really looking back at an earlier time. And I, I, in a way, I think much of my poetic project in my last book, in this most recent one too, are about trying to kind of 
refer to that, describe it, and and describe this world that has really that is also disappearing. Is that why it's important to you? Because you're you're noting that this this world that hasn't art hasn't necessarily been made about this place and it's disappearing. So you you want you feel this compulsion to make art about this place so it doesn't disappear. Maybe, right? I think probably, but it feels much more personal to me. That, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem like a kind of outside and conscious choice that I'm doing that. I, I'm, I'm writing about this place because it's a thing that I know. And yes. it's a place that's also incredibly vivid in my mind. And I go back there. It's not, you know, my mother still lives... Uh, it lives at home. Um, and she's, she's still there. You know, my brother lives there and I, you know, it's a, it's a, um, it's a place that I go back to and I still have a relationship to it. I know people there, but it does feel as though I, I can feel those ties kind of loosening a little bit. And in some ways I do feel compelled to kind of get it down, to remember things, to write about it. But I could very well be writing about something else and feel feel similar about it, you know, trying to kind of capture some something that feels ethereal. And so, but it's also a really vivid place, and uh, and one that's I think quite beautiful and strange, and um, and it it seems like a good subject. It made me think of your poem, "A Driftless Sun," which is the second poem in God of Nothingness and also is on your landing page for your website as well. And there's a moment in it, uh, let's see, uh, almost, yeah, almost midway through. And let's see, you say, give it to me. I'll remember that bit too. When you're, you're, the poem is is speaking about um, the hired man, Tiny, who died by stepping in front of a train and, and his dog, Bear. It's interesting. It's like there's these details. Does anyone remember this fat fact? A loaf of toast and a dozen eggs was Tiny's daily breakfast meal. Give it to me. I'll remember that bit too. These vivid memories you have, but also this reaching outward to have these other lives in in the stories. Because, of course, these lives connected to yours, Mark, and continue to in, in the life of the mind or heart. It seems like. Well, you know this. You you're, you mention uh, my. This is my grandfather's hired man. Um, he was who everyone called Tiny, and of course, Tiny was you know six and a half feet tall and over three hundred pounds. He was the largest human I'd ever seen. Um, Tiny was also. Um, I never heard Tiny speak, and I, in fact, I don't know if he did. Um, I certainly never heard him speak. And my grandfather, who was loquacious, um, well under five feet tall, and um, smart, um, you know, Tiny was also developmentally disabled. He uh, lived at home with his father and brother. His father is, you know, and they, these were other, these two. It was a household of three absolutely massive men who all lived together. The mother had died. They were there. Tiny worked for my grandfather, and the two of them were quite a pair. My grandfather, you know, under five feet tall, this little man, talkative, always talking. My And Tiny, who never spoke, who was three 
300 pounds and six and a half feet tall, this massive wall of a man, and the two of them were always together. And you can imagine the figure that these two cut together as they kind of moved through the world as a team, right? Because they they were together all the time. You know, Tiny just could pick anything up. He could lift anything. He was there doing this incredibly hard stuff. And my grandfather, who was this very small man, um, couldn't and was old. And the, you know, and I remember the, these, these people were these fixtures in my childhood. And I think like, it really is like something from a fairy tale when you think yes. about it, like these two kind of walking down the street, you know, <laughs> together, um, create, making this kind of team tiny, of course, you know, uh, his, and I don't know what his, his name was, what his Christian name was. Um, I have no recollection of that, but I do remember, um, his death and it was after my grandfather had died and tiny, that was sort of, um, you know, tiny, uh, lost his, didn't have a job after that. And, and, um, and he committed suicide and he committed suicide by, by stepping in front of a train. Um, and it was, you know, um, it was a terrible terrible, very sad ending to his life. And at one point I, you know, I was just thinking about him, thinking about his life, thinking about that man, um, and, uh, about his, his demise and, uh, kind of just wondering who, who remembers him, you know, who is anyone left alive who thinks about him? Um, neither his, he or his brother married or had children or, you know, um, that family kind of, um, died away. And mm-hmm. I just thought who, you know, does anyone remember and think about this person anymore? And I, and I thought, well, I do, you know, I think about him. I remember him. He was very gentle man. He was, you know, um, uh, very kind of biddable and always around and completely silent. Um, it's, it's a very, it's a very strange thing to kind of think about. And, and this person who I know so little about, but who I remember, I have no idea what he thought about anything. I have no idea if he spoke to my grandfather. I, and I, as I said, I never heard him speak. It is amazing to think that people can have such, such a part, make such an imprint on us in our lives, especially when we're, we're young, as you're looking back and in these poems, Mark, almost it's, it's, they become part of our, the imagination and the fabric of our known world at that time. And then it is vivid. And if we're lucky, it's vivid forever or for, for most of our life. Well, you know, one of the, you said the word imprint, sort of leaving an imprint, I just am recalling something else about him. So um, my, my grandfather had this, had a pickup truck and it was, um, it had, you know, the faux wood panel on the side mm-hmm. and it was a short box pickup and it had been jacked up so that the axles would have been raised and it had big tires, like almost not quite a monster truck, but it had been sort of jacked up and it had a short box. It was bright yellow. It had a great big long CB whip antenna on it. And, um, and because it was high and my grandfather loved this truck, which was big and powerful at a big V8 engine. And, he uh, had to weld a little step onto the running board so he could actually get in. Uh-huh. And, uh, and then he and Tiny would ride around in this truck, bright yellow. And <laughs> I, when he, my grandfather died, 
I inherited his truck. And I was the envy of every high school farm boy, of course, you know, it had an eight track and gun racks. And, you know, I mean, this was like a hot truck. Yeah. But as soon as I was in, I, you know, was in it, I, I realized that the seat on the shotgun side and where tiny sat, the springs were, the springs were gone. Like the springs were totally shot from him. And on warm days, there was a very strong smell of tiny. I mean, it was, it had a very strong human smell and, uh, and it was so tiny was, uh, you know, present in that, in that truck every time I drove it and he was there and anyone who got into the passenger side would sort of sink down into it. And I said, that's, you know, because that's tiny spot. So, um, and there were, um, there were blocks on the, on the pedals that my, my grandfather had, had, you know, made wooden blocks, which he had sort of applied to the screwed into the pedals of the, of the, you know, the clutch and the gas, the brake so that he could reach them better. Can we talk about your name and and why you chose the lead poem in God of Nothingness? Sure. So the the first the first poem in the um, in the book is about my last name and it uses my last name as the title. So, um, you know, I, it, it's um, it's kind of a, it's sort of one of those poems you can write write a write a poem as a, you can do it as an exercise. Write a poem about the what about the meaning of your name. Um, one of the things, of course, I've heard my whole life was you know a, about my last name Wonderlick. So does it mean wonderful? The answer is, of course, it does not. It, it means something quite different from that. And um, and there's you know also this the 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 fact I I I spent a lot of time in in Germany and Austria in 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 my life and um, and I, I went there sort of early on as an exchange student. And I was very excited about the prospect of having my name be understood, be pronounceable, not seem strangely ethnic, not have, you know, people comment on it, not have it have it slightly uh, pornographic sounding English pronunciation. You know, I was all excited about all those possibilities when, in fact, I got there and people saw the name and they actually think it's kind of a humorous name, that the name is sort of funny. Um, because it means odd, you know, it's like having the last name, you know, strange. <laughs> right. Um, right. Yeah. And so I thought about that a little bit and, and I decided to write a poem that was a kind of meditation on the meaning of the name. And I started thinking about all of the other, you know, there, there aren't, um, it's not a, a hugely, um, common name in Germany. It is not uncommon, but there are some figures who have had this name and there's some notable figures. There's uh, a well-known Austrian tenor who had the name, um, who died young, drunkenly falling down the stairs. Um, there's a, there's several other people, you know, um, but I, I, there was one that kept coming up when you search for the name. There's a woman who's a botanical illustrator. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if there was such a thing as a famous botanical illustrator? It's like, you know, I once saw an, an auction booklet for a Sotheby's auction of, that was described as an auction of important snuff boxes. And I thought that's the most hilarious description of a snuff box I've ever heard. Important snuff boxes. Someone was having fun with that description. So I, I am... Um, so this this um, it it uh, it's a it's a poem in which I actually had quite a bit of fun thinking about eccentricity, thinking about 
what a name means, how a name kind of predisposes one to something, what it says about who you, you are and what it doesn't say about who you are. Um, and it's a, a poem that also meditates a little bit on the idea of inheritance, of what we get from those who came before us, what we're part of, if we're part of a, you know, every family in the world is an old family. You know, you hear that stupid phrase, like, yeah. so they come from a very old family. That yeah. includes every single family. Um, <laughs> uh, it's just that some of them are better at documentation. Um, and, um, so, you know, it contemplates all of those things. Um, and let's see, is there anything I need to sort of translate or, or in it? Not really. There is a phrase in German, and it does the German pronunciation of my last name, which is Wunderlich. So you will hear that here. Wunderlich. The name means odd. The name means queer. It can denote an odd fish. It suggests a queer chap. Sometimes it means capricious. It can also mean peevish. It's a synonym for singular. It is thought to be poetic. The Pied Piper of Hamelin was called Ein Wunderlicher Kautz. With his colorful clothing come to pipe the rats away. He drowned them in the vaser, or so the stories go. When the mayor withheld payment, he took the children and drowned them with the rats. Or perhaps they went into the mountains where they moved to Transylvania. It is 100 years since our children left, says the crumbling book found in the church. That is what it means to be a wonderlick. The name means strange things happen to him. It means he can be disputatious. It means he sometimes wears peculiar garments to a party. That as he aged, he became younger, less reliable, more in touch with what he would call his soul. You might not call it that yourself. It can mean quarrelsome. It can mean he prefers cats. It can mean he has a gnome tattooed near the hair underneath his arm. It means he loves Christmas like a simpleton. It means makes sushi out of spam. The name means curious, as in he bought a haunted house. And since weaning, he's not touched a woman's breast. It means he loves the color orange. It means he studied Dutch. It means pancakes for supper once again this week, and that he prefers to knit his own socks. The name means electric organ maestro. The name means famous botanical illustrator. It means the drunken tenor ass over tea kettle down a set of Viennese stairs. It is true there are few of us that we spread ourselves thin around the globe. Find us making wine in Hungary, herding cattle in Namibia, captaining a ship somewhere off the Chilean coast. My wonderlicks steamed up the long brown Mississippi in a boat that put them and their peculiarities off in Wisconsin where the name means a shady farm growing a crop of moss on a roof, an old man with a pistol in his pants, a child who didn't survive and occupies a pagan's ashy grave atop a limestone bluff, where the wind speaks his strange name or worse, voices recognition, an attribution, or a curse.
Thank you, Mark. It's it's interesting to because we heard about before the poem, maybe some of the process where you were having fun, but also researching some of these other, I imagine you maybe Googling the name. Is that what happened to find the tenor, to find the botanical illustrator, to find, but, but the poem, you said maybe, you said it can be kind of fun. It was fun to write, but it's interesting how at the end, that's not the, the intent of the poem's delivery, it seems. Well, that's that's certainly right. I mean, it 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 definitely ends on uh, on with a kind of sadness and you know, sort of thinking about about that. I you know the the I think I think it's sort of both of those things, right? I I think of poems as places that kind of house mixed feelings, that house our ambivalence, the places where where one puts contradictory impulses get to, you know, um, wrestle with each other. Yes. And that, that's what they're, I mean, that's just the sort of basic Keatsian idea of negative capability where you have the idea that the poem does not solve or resolve, um, something, but that it contains something. It contains a kind of tension that one experiences with, you know, within contradictions. And, uh, that you know, there's there's something in, in terms of thinking about about my name. You know, I've known about these different figures um, m- much of my life. About you know, there's a, a a musician from the he's not in the poem. A musician, uh, Fritz. No, Fritz is the tenor. I'm forgetting what his name is, but a wonderlic who was oh the electric organ maestro. He is in fact oh, in there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He, in fact, played like a Moog organ and was known in the 70s all throughout Germany for these like schmaltzy songs he used to play. It was really funny. Um, And I occasionally get contacted by hipsters in Germany who want to know if I'm related. So that's actually kind of a funny thing. But, you know, that the poem is also about the kind of um, sadness of, 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 of what we inherit, inherit as well. And, uh, you know, I, I like poems. Like, I think that in this book, I think I was able to occasionally even be funny, you know, um, yes. that there is humor here. And I wanted that to be the case. I wanted there to be a chance that there are things that were, you know, simultaneously funny, but also, of course, also sad, which I think is what humor is often about humor is often a, a counter action, you know, a, a, a way of, of countering sadness, a way of, of, you know, of figuring out how to live with it. And it's one of the reasons we make jokes about bad things that happen to us because it makes them bearable. Yes. And, um, and so that I think might be part of what's happening in this poem. Yes. Yes. And these, these lovely lines where the, when the, the poem is sort of shifting, like with the my wonderlick steamed up, you know, like this put them and their peculiarities off in Wisconsin. It's lovely and and warm and and then just the the tension of the poem keeps building though after that. Yeah, it does. It sort of it moves toward you know, something, something more, more serious. And, um, and I refer there to the, uh, death of my nephew who, um, who died, uh, who committed suicide when he was, uh, 20. 
and um, and his his ashes are scattered there on top of the bluff. Um, and uh, it sort of you know that that kind of comes back um, in a few poems that memory that thought of that of him um, yes. and of his life and and of his death. So that you know that's that's there in the background of that poem as well. In section two of God of Nothingness, uh, Mark, it seems that there are several poems of elegy and in one for your nephew and and also the title poem Mm. uh, god of nothingness which is for your was is about your father could could you talk about this poem about the title poem yeah yeah so um it's a you know that that's a poem that i wrote um uh, now it feels like some some time ago, and it really is about. It's a poem that that recalls uh, um, an an experience that my father had, something I you know learned about. And um, my my father had um, a brain tumor, and he eventually died of you know complications from this. Though he he lived with it um, with brain cancer for a very long time. He was one of those sort of rare, um, survivors, you know, over almost eight years, I think, um, after the first diagnosis and the first surgery of a tumor after radiation treatment, um, you know, he, he survived for a very long time and, um, and, but it was increasingly diminished, um, as, as that happened. But before we actually knew, before there was a diagnosis, before we knew that, um, he did have a, a tumor, um, he, his, his behavior changed and his personality changed and he became very, very, very quiet. Um, he started to have aphasia where he couldn't remember words and his balance was affected. And so you saw, um, he, you know, and, and he also became quite belligerent about any idea of medical intervention. He refused to see a doctor. He, you know, there was, there were some strange things that were going on there and would become quite argumentative and difficult if you brought up this, you know, proposed that perhaps he should get this checked out. Yeah. It seemed pretty clear that what was going to have to happen was some sort of crisis for him to to act and that's indeed what happened in that poem documents that experience where he was out hunting he was in a boat um and he fell out of the boat he lost his balance which of course can happen any time but he was out there with his dog and and you know my mother told me this story i wasn't there i was here in new york and you know she told me about it and um about this experience and how he had almost drowned um, it, you know, he didn't come home. She went out, you know, drove to the mar- place, the farm where the marsh was, where he, she thought he was hunting and got the farmer to, you know, go and find him. And then indeed there he was, he was in the water, um, and couldn't get out. 
Um, and while my mother was telling me this, I remember asking, you know, what, where was the dog? Right. You know, I mean, where, where was Will? And, you know, indeed, Will had like headed for the hills. Like, he was like, okay, you know, it was not one of those lassie moments, like Timmy's in the well, go get help. I mean, it was not that. Like, Will just d- decided to, you know, go off on his own and have a, have a great afternoon by himself. And um, that's in fact what happened. And so it was a, it was, you know, it was not, as I say in the poem, it was, it wasn't a kind of comforting story about the animal going for help. Um, It was quite some, something else, quite, quite not that. And I wanted to write a poem that actually described that experience of sort of hearing this story that recalled the story that tried to kind of get some of these elements in it. And it is a narrative poem. And it's a poem in which I wanted to really describe things in a way that was almost flat in a way that that was not about kind of having a sort of lavish description that was not about lyrical language describing someone else's suffering um i i what i and and i thought that i needed to narrate this in a way that was quite plain and straightforward there are, because I couldn't help myself, there are a couple of sort of lyrical gestures that happen in it, I think. But for the most part, I think I succeeded in keeping that tone quite not ornamented, not crenellated. Um, Why for this poem did you know, and for this, what you want, what this poem wanted to say, that that was the way to deliver it? Well, isn't it interesting that, you know, when we think about... Um, aestheticizing someone else's pain for the sake of a work of art, right? I, I think that, you know, this is a, this is kind of a complicated territory. I think that this is, you know, I think that when we're telling a story about someone else, we need to be conscious, you know, particularly when we're talking about someone's suffering, someone's oppression about, you know, about these sort of subjects. You know, I recently, um, I, I, I recently heard a number of poems that were sort of invoking the children locked in cages at the U.S.-Mexico border. And I started thinking, you know, they don't get a say in this. Like, here they right. are. Here they are as these sort of tools, aesthetic tools that uh-huh. are being deployed by. I'm being very tough on my fellow poets, but I think that this is this is something to really think about, you know, to yes. think about how we are using and aestheticizing suffering. Yes. In the form of literature and other things. Now, sometimes we're doing it in service to something bigger and sometimes it works. And sometimes we're doing it in a way that is meant to kind of demonstrate our own sensitivity and our own political conviction. And I think it's very important for poets to ask those questions of themselves about why they're, you know, they may believe it is all about their political conviction, but you know, one has to ask, why are you telling me this? Why yes. are you telling me this story? And why, you know, and and why not another story? And and is this story somehow untold by the people who are involved in it? You know, and so those are and and there are a lot of I'm I'm I don't want to sort of shut the door on anyone writing about anything, right? But I think that these are important questions to ask as we approach subjects. And I started thinking about the idea of writing about my father's illness and his suffering. And what I didn't want was for that to be pretty. Mm, And I didn't want that experience to be one in which I, you know, I also thought 
I guess I need to make this about my understanding of it and not about, not sort of place myself in his, as if I had some insight into what his experience was. And so you gesture, you have those moments in the poem, um, I must correct myself, or the water was cold, I know that. Right. And I think that the poem isn't necessarily about me wanting to make some declarations about this, but me contending with this idea of how do you tell us, how do you tell this story? How, and, and, and I, so I did find myself backtracking and correcting and that the poem, I think documents my struggle with both the desire to tell it, but also my understanding about the difficulty of claiming, you know, claiming this as something that's my own. And, and is that, Mark, is that the part, I wonder, in the, when you write in the, in the poem, and it's towards the end of God of Nothingness, the couplet, to admit my father's infirmity would bring down the wrath of the God of Nothingness. Yeah, that's that's a sort of turn that the poem takes, right? It's the place where the poem moves away from a description of events, from something that is very factual, to something that becomes, you know, largely metaphorical, where I talk about this idea of, of you know, this invention of mine, this sort of character, uh, this sort of figure of the god of nothingness, which is really a sort of metaphor for for death. The de- a metaphor as a kind of god of god of death and 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 destruction or illness, that sort of thing that comes in and and doesn't seem to care about the suffering that it's going to cause. Or you know, I and I started kind of. Imagine that as a kind of figure in a very pagan um, way, imagining a kind of god of death that would come in heartlessly, coldly, bringing bringing destruction onto people and onto the world. And so that was this figure I kind of concocted and put in the poem, but that's also the place in the poem where it begins to turn toward the metaphoric and toward... Um, uh, you know, begins to distance itself from the story and think about the larger implications of of what this illness was going to mean and what this incident was the kind of um, series of events that this event that this event started. And even though this is then moving into that realm of metaphor, it still is keeping true to what you you wanted for this poem, Mark, it seems with this, when you talked about the plainness of the language, the God, this is towards the very last, in the last two couplets of the poem, this God is a cold God, a hungry God, selfish and with poor sight. And then the last line, this God has the head of a dog. So such this moment where it's, it's so, it's, serious but then it's connecting back to that moment of the narrative where it it is very funny and strange that the dog leaves and is not being lassie to your father will is not saving him and he's wandering off and is indifferent i think is what the poem says indifferent to my father's plight when you found that do you remember those moments when you were shaping the last 
lines of, of God of nothingness? I do. I do remember writing the last line and I, I, I have to say, I really congratulated myself on having sort of arrived at that. That's one shouldn't ever admit that, but it was one of those moments where, you know, I was thinking about, about the, the dog was in there. I came upon this idea of the God of nothingness. And then I was thinking God and dog, you know, that yes. the one they can be reversed. I was thinking about the idea of this, what this reversal would suggest. And I was, I had that vision that, that, you know, of the, of the Egyptian dog headed jackal headed God as well that came into my mind and which I'd always been kind of haunted by as a, as a child, you know, coming across those images of the ibis headed God and the dog, the jackal headed dog. Um, and so that kind of came into it as well. I thought of those, you know, the reason we know about those the depictions of those gods as they were painted inside of tombs. They were there to accompany the dead. I guess I, I, I imagined that that was all sort of wrapped up in the, in the kind of traffic of association that I was engaging with that I was, you know, um, as I, as I came into that and, you know, and the dog, poor William, uh, that was the dog's name. He was, you know, um, a, a beautiful retriever in many ways, not the sharpest tool in the shed and, you know, and turns out not the most loyal one either, or just got distracted, you know, had other priorities and so wandered off. And, you know, so it was, it, that struck me as a, as a, as something too, you know, where was the, the kind of faithfulness of this creature who was supposed to serve his keeper in this way who just didn't and and that also seemed to me to have say something about the idea of illness how arbitrary it is how unfair it is how how it it just happens um how it's not you know um it's it's in a way it's often blameless it's you know i mean it it's like what, what what are you supposed to do with it it just it's a thing that as human beings we have to that happens. Sometimes it just happens to us. There's nothing you could do to prevent it. There's, it just is a thing and you have to contend with it. Um, it's cruel. Um, but it's, it's ultimately, if we think of like a virus as a living thing or a cancer as a living thing or something like that, it's also totally indifferent to us, I guess. I don't know. We don't know what it's like to be a virus, but there you go. It, um, it's, it's, um, there, there's a way in which our feelings, which always seem so significant because we have them because they are ours are just not significant to the bigger picture in so many ways. And, uh, you know, the poem was trying to kind of bind some of that up and, and put it in one place to be able to stand back and look at it. Mark, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. I, I hope we get a chance to talk again one day. I do too, and I hope we get to do that in person in Ann Arbor, which is a, a place that I love. I would love it. Today on Living Writers, Mark Wunderlich. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you If you
say maybe Maybe I'm in love with you I say maybe Welcome, everyone, to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. I'm Zachary Linder, along with Ryan Dolson and Connor Eargood. And I would like to remind you that this episode is being pre-recorded on the night of Tuesday, October 19th, which means we will not be able to cover any events that occur between now and when this airs on Wednesday, October 20th. And I'd like to talk today about what we saw with the NFL in week six. And I think trying to figure out who's a legitimate contender and who's a pretender after we saw some unexpected 3-0 starts. And I want to start with the AFC. And the big team I want to talk about is the Denver Broncos because they started 3-0 by beating the Giants, the Jaguars, and the Jets, which I think should have raised a lot of red flags but people really believed in that Broncos team. And it's I, not. Um, oh, sorry, go ahead. And, you know, they lost to the Ravens. And of course, Teddy Bridgewater got injured with a concussion in that game. But then since then, they lost to Pittsburgh and then they lost at home to the Raiders. So it's not even like they've had a brutal schedule to lose those three games in a row. So I'm curious what you guys think about them. But I think they might be the biggest pretender, at least in the AFC. I don't even I don't even think that that's a question. I was on a broadcast when they went three zero. Somebody on there was saying, "I think the Broncos are gonna go to the Super Bowl. I think they're gonna win the Super Bowl." And I was sitting there just being like, "You know, if you say so, I would not. I would not place that bet any day under the sun this season." And especially looking at these three games that they've played, those ugly losses, and they 